Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. As a member of the Ottawa tribe and someone who's worked with over 500 tribal nations, my guest has long been inspired by his Native American culture and heritage, particularly the tradition of Native warriors. And he thinks those warriors have much to teach all modern people about work, life, and leadership. His name is DJ Vanis, and he's the author of The Warrior Within, Own Your Power to Serve, Fight, Protect, and Heal. Today on the show... DJ explains what the warrior spirit is and how important it is for everyone to cultivate, especially those who want to lead, serve, and live with a purpose bigger than the self. He takes principles of Native American tradition and philosophy, including living off the land, taking a vision quest, counting coup, being a firekeeper, and developing toughness, and shows how they apply to anyone who's looking to develop resilience, achieve their goals, and make a positive impact on the world. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash warriorspirit. All right, DJ Vanis, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Brett. So you got a book out called The Warrior Within, Own Your Power to Serve, Fight, Protect, and Heal. We're going to talk about this book today. I really enjoyed it. Let's talk about your background first. You are a speaker and a leadership consultant. How'd you get into this business? Oh my gosh, I kind of fell into it, to be honest with you. It opened a doorway I didn't even know existed. I'm a graduate, proud graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy. And when I graduated from there, I had a conversation with the recruiting office because I said, hey, there's, you know, there's only a few of us who are native. Can we work on changing that? I basically, I, I got hired to work for them for a year. And I went out and I spoke to tribal communities in particular all across the nation and talked about the benefits of the Air Force Academy, being an officer in the military. And I found that I absolutely loved it being out there and and being able to share a message of you know higher education of self improvement and it kind of grew from there and into this it kind of became a life of its own and just kind of took off so i had to make a choice at a certain point between being a full-time officer and starting my own speaking business and it was a good problem to have it was really stressful but that's that's how it came to be it just kind of opened a pathway and took on a life of its own Okay, so you mentioned that you are Native American. You're a member of the Ottawa yes. tribe of Michigan. I had to look that up because we have we have an Ottawa tribe of Oklahoma here That's in Oklahoma. That's part of our tribe too. One of the bands who actually got moved down there during the Trail of Tears. Right. And uh, I believe they were in Northeast or Northwest Ohio as where their community was, but everybody else stayed back in Michigan. So you, uh, you started off your, your speaking career, started off by you were sort of like a liaison for the Air Force to the Native American community. Right. Then you decided, I'm going to, I could do this on my own. I really enjoy it here. So what, who are your main clients? Like who, who hires you to come speak and, and, and teach? Yeah, great question. The majority of who I serve, and it's my wheelhouse, is those who are in service to others. So people who are in healthcare, education, benevolent businesses, government and tribal employees, community builders at every level. I mean, that's where my heart is. It's who I you know, so enjoy serving. I grew up in a very service-oriented family too. My dad was career military. My mom was a career nurse. So I grew up seeing that mentality and then seeing the, you know, the cultural alignment with what our, you know, warriors were all about, which is to be in service to others. It just all kind of dovetailed together into what I share now. And that that's why those are the groups I serve most often. And like I said, I, I love being where the givers gather. And something that makes you unique 
from the other you know consultants and speakers out there is that you you call upon you look to your your Native American heritage to show people that there are principles there that that it can apply to anyone. When did you make that connection? Like, oh, this could serve a wider audience. Yeah, I think that started early on. I mean, probably my teenage years, definitely in college, absolutely once I joined the military. I started to see this beautiful alignment between, you know, these ideas, these these cultural principles, especially specifically, you know, what our warriors used and saw great alignment in the world that we live in today, how how useful they can be. And they've been tested under the worst of times. They were tested, you know, our warriors fought against incredible odds. They were outmatched technologically in numbers. And it just having those principles at our disposal gives us resiliency, strength, you know, focus and commitment in a very tough world. So I thought that's, that's when I started making that connection, everything started to change. Okay. So let's talk about some of these principles and what you do in this book is you take ideas, practices from all sorts of tribes uh, in the United States. But I think oftentimes when people think about Native Americans, I think sometimes there's this idea that they're sort of a monolith, but they're not. Every tribe is unique. They have their own unique culture and practices. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, yo, go ahead. I was going to say, we have diversity within diversity. Yeah. And we have over 570 federally recognized tribes that speak over 200 different languages, different belief systems, cultural you know, concepts, a lot of commonalities. But yeah, there's definitely a lot of diversity. That's why I enjoy so much working in tribal communities. So you you kind of found some principles from from different tribes and showed people like what you can learn from this. Whether you're in, in you're as you said, you're you're focused on leaders, people who serve, healthcare, doctors, first responders, etc. Let's talk about this definition of a warrior, right? Because you think all these people could be considered warriors. What does it mean to be a warrior in Native American cultures, and how does that? differ from our typical conception of a warrior in the West? Yeah, great question. My tribe, we call a warrior Ogichida. And that term has nothing to do with what we see in TV and movies, you know, the stereotypical image, that Hollywood image that we all know, you know, the sweaty chiseled figure that, you know, steps down the street and knocks over buildings with bazookas and bad guys, you know, with 8 million bullets. It's a, it's a different concept. And, and it goes back to, um, the idea of a person who dedicates their life to developing their creator-given talents and abilities so they could become an asset or a benefit to the tribe that they served. And today, whether that tribe is your own family, your community, your team, your agency, your organization, your nation, the planet, we all get to choose what tribe we serve, but we all have one. And that warrior role was all about service. It wasn't about what we could get. It was about what we could do for someone else. It was somebody who led by example and somebody who did not quit. That was a, a really important part as somebody who found a way forward because they knew it wasn't about them. It was about the people that they were taking care of and contributing to. And so your book's called The Warrior Spirit. So I mean, is the warrior spirit just that internal drive to develop your talents so that you can be a service to other people? Absolutely. Yeah. The warrior within, in the book, I, I unpack the warrior spirit in particular. And it goes beyond motivation. I mean, it goes to a, a spiritual level, if you will. I mean, it's that deep internal core of us that comes out when we're challenged, when we go through hard times, when we go through loss or pain, we're fear. And it's that reserve that we can pull from in those moments. And that warrior spirit is that no quit, bare knuckle, I will find a way forward, even if I have to crawl across the finish line type of attitude. You know, it's fiercely solution oriented. 
and it it suffers no fools. You know, it is it is all in, and that's what I try to unpack in the book is that this is what sustained our, our warrior societies for our tribes because, like I said, they went through incredible odds, incredible setbacks, deprivation, you know, organized genocide, and they still found a way to deliver and protect their people. And what does that warrior spirit look like in someone who, you know, they're in a leadership position? Like, as you said, you're the people you're, you're writing for or, or talking to the, the first responders, the, the people who serve, et cetera. Yeah. That warrior spirit is it, first of all, it has to be fostered. You know, it's who we surround ourselves with, how we, what habits we practice for ourselves. But like I said, it's that internal core of a spirit that is willing to face fear head on, that's willing to accept when things aren't going well, being able to change and not let our pride and ego determine, you know, the fact that we're just going to keep banging our head on a brick wall. There's a, there's a lot of things that go into it, but that warrior spirit is that unquenchable fire. You can't put it out. It's always there. The only question is, is it burning down to an ember, which sometimes happens when we're not t- taking good care of ourselves and surround ourselves with the right people or have the right practices? Or is it burning like a bonfire? That's the only question. We always have it, but what we do with it is up to us. Yeah, I think a lot of people, when you, when you, as you're describing this, I, I've experienced that where there's something that I'm doing that's more, it's more, it's beyond just money, right? It's not just a job. Mm-hmm. It, it's like a calling, right? Yeah. But it's I think all, you, right. And you get excited and you're, you're, you're willing to, you know, put in the long hours and the, the upsets and the frustrations. But as you said, sometimes that warrior spirit can sort of go down to an ember. That's when people start feeling burnout and you're just like, yes. Man, I don't want to do this anymore. And that's why I wrote the book. I mean, to be honest with you, those people who I said I love being around most, you know, those people who have a servant's heart and are trying to make the world a better place. I have watched this dynamic for over two decades of people who have the best intentions, noble intentions, and their execution is a hot mess. You know, they're, they're, they're trying to give everything they can on a daily basis, but they're not taking care of themselves. They're not doing what they need to stay strong. They're not practicing resiliency on purpose, not having it as a good thought in your head, but actually practicing it. And what they end up doing is falling apart. And they stand back and they look at the debris field left and they go, how the heck did this happen? And what it comes down to is that the reality, the truth, you can't be a warrior when you're falling apart. You know, I wrote the book so that people can be resilient, not for this week or this month, but for a lifetime, for a career. You know, there are people depending on us to deliver the goods, to be brave in a moment of fear. We can't do that if we just go until we can't anymore. And that's, you know, it just, it leads us to burnout. It's not a sustainable model and we want it to be sustainable. Okay. So let's dig into some of these principles that people can apply to foster that warrior spirit and keep it, keep it burning bright. And the first principle you look at from Native American cultures is this idea of learning to live off the land. What does that look like? Yeah, that's uh, learning to live off the land. I, I've been inspired doing this work for 25 years now. I've worked with over 500 tribal communities. Every single one of them used what was in their backyard to create success. You know, the the Pueblo people in New Mexico live in an area that's, you know, very harsh, hot in the summer, cold in the winter. They l- literally use the mud in their backyard to create adobe and create these beautifully engineered multi-level apartment complexes built into the side of a cliff, by the way. That some of which are still standing today. My people will use birch bark for everything, for shelters, for containers, and the canoes that made us famous. We also tapped the trees in our backyard, specifically maple, 
and created a wonderful concoction called maple syrup. You're welcome. And that <laughs> that's you know how we use those you know resources that are right in our own backyard. In a modern day context, we have a wealth of resources in us and around us on a daily basis and an embarrassment of resources that we sometimes don't recognize and we don't tap, we don't leverage. And including simple things like our time, our energy, our talent, I mean, really basic stuff, let alone, you know, technology, other people. I mean, we should never feel stuck or that we can't find the answer. And, and that's what that learning to live off the land is all about is be aware, situational awareness, you know, look around, take a resource list. You know, when European Europeans made it to the shores of North America, they thought native people were magic. We were mystics because we were such good observers of what was going on and had such a great understanding of our resources that it bordered on magic, you know, in the eyes of the Europeans. So we can develop that in our daily lives as well, just by taking the autopilot off and really recognizing what we have to work with. No, I've seen this dynamic play out in my own life and also the lives of other people where they got this grand goal they've wanted to accomplish for the greater good. But then they think, before I can even get started, I need this and I need that thing, I need this. And because they do that, they don't ever, they never get started. That's it. It's that prepare to prepare to prepare to prepare. And then we never actually take action. You know, when I when I started, well, again, going back to that tribal-centric way of thinking, you know, using our resources, our warriors could use a rock and a stick and shape the rock and shape the stick into something that could get dinner, defend the village, you know, skin uh, or a scrape a skin, multi-purpose tool based off of a rock and a stick. You know, I started my business. I was scared to death when I started. I was an officer full-time in the military, you know, very stable lifestyle, you know, uh, good pay, great benefits and at full of purpose. But when I left, I went into basically a blue sky type of project and there was a lot of fear there. And I started my business with literally a Kinko's business card and a sky pager. Yeah. And, and so you just have to start where you are and grow from there. And I see, I think a, a good practice that people can do in their own lives before they say they got this, this goal they want to accomplish mm-hmm. before you get going, just like make a list of the resources you have already at your disposal. And like, you have to be, like you said, situationally aware to, to, so you don't overlook really obvious things in your life. Yeah. And that's a, that's a great practice. I mean, it really is, is to be able to do that before you start taking action is just get organized, you know, list all the things that you've got to work with, list all the people in your network that you could ask these questions. I am blown away by when I get stumped sometimes that I, you know, 99 and a half times out of a hundred, I have somebody in my immediate network that has an answer or could probably find an answer to what's stumping me. And so when we're able to take an assessment like that, a few things happen that are great. Number one, we're much more likely to find a solution to our challenge. Two, we're a lot more confident in dealing with fear and setbacks. And number three, we're rekindling, re-strengthening those bonds when we reach out uh, to connect with other people that have resources we need because down the road, we're going to have resources they need too. So one of the resources you talk about in this chapter is this idea of the medicine bag. What is the medicine bag in Native culture? Yeah, a lot, a lot of our tribes have a version of a medicine bag. And just being you know general with this, it's a, it's a bag that held sacred items to the wearer so that 
the items in there could be, um, you know, herbs or tobacco, you know, sage, it could be animal teeth or claws. It could be a stone. It could something that has significance for the person wearing it, because when they have that around them, again, we're confident, we're brave, we're courageous. We have something we can lean on because we know we are literally carrying part of our own power around our necks. And the way that we do that today is, is kind of taking that assessment again of all the stuff that's in our own medicine bags, our skills, our talent, ability, education, the wisdom that we learn in life by, by taking it in the chin. You know, those are sometimes the lessons that are number one, most valuable. And number two, the ones we never forget. And we tend to overlook those in times of struggle. And, and what I encourage people to do is, you know, instead of getting a freaked out deer in the headlights type of look like we get, look down at your medicine bag, open that thing up and see what is in there. You have collected so much in there. Uh, you've got more in there than you need in a hundred lifetimes, but we, but it doesn't do us any good if we don't know what it looks like and we don't bring it out and use it. All right. So principle number one, learn to live off the land, look at the resources you have, be, have an abundance mindset instead of this uh, scarcity mindset. Right. Another principle you talk about is this idea of vision quest. And this is a part of warrior cultures across tribes. Uh, This is something you've done. And I'm I'm wondering, could you share about your personal vision quest and, you know, like what the process is like and more importantly, how did it change you? Yeah, it was, well, it was transformative, you know, um, First and foremost, it, it's a ceremony that we do to get to seek guidance in our own life journey. And so we do that through, by isolating ourselves in a small patch of wilderness for, you know, days and nights on end, uh, no food, no water, no shelter. And I will tell you, you get more clarity in that exercise, in that ceremony than I've ever been able to do in any other aspect or any other activity in my life. I mean, you literally let everything kind of fall away. You're out in wilderness, no media, no fighting your way to traffic on the way to work, no other people around. It's just you, your prayer pipe, the outdoors, and your creator. And I tell you what, it is like the ultimate exercise in letting the mud settle in your dirt or letting the dirt settle in your mud puddle. Um, you, you get back to a place of clarity. You really reprioritize what's really important in this life. Um, and when I was out there, you know, I didn't think about politics. I didn't think about career moves. I didn't think about uh, arguments that I had or petty squabbles uh, or, or, you know, any of the other stuff, taxes, the stuff that kind of gets, you know, weighs down on our head. I thought about water. I thought about shelter, food, the people I love, the kind of person I want to be in this life. And so it was a, it was an ultimate exercise in clarity uh, when you go through that. And I mentioned in the book, you know, we can get that we don't have to go through that ceremony to get clarity in our life and career. Um, we can spend the first 10 minutes of every morning letting the dirt settle in our mud puddle and get a lot of benefit doing that. What is what would, what would, what would that look like? Just taking 10 minutes of solitude, quiet time, you know, no media, no, no phones, no checking your email, just having a, a bit of quiet space to kind of reflect on what you need to get done that day, what type of person you want to be in that day, and have the grace and the strength to handle whatever may come your way. Pre-make that decision before the day starts. And the quality of our, our day shoots through the roof when we're able to do that. Because so often we just roll right out of bed and jump into our life and we're kicking up dust. And sometimes we don't even know if we're going the right direction. Uh, when we give ourselves a little bit of that solitude, we give ourselves a great gift in this crazy world. We give ourselves clarity 
in a world of chaos. And something else people could do too, and you talk about this in the book, is they could even go deeper with this that beyond that 10-minute daily thing and actually set aside time where they go off somewhere where they have time just to think about their mission in life. What are their, their motivating values? Uh, and I, I think you know, Stephen Covey famously talks about this idea of having a personal mission statement. And he'd often encourage people to you know, take a weekend where you're just going to think about what it is that you're about, not only professionally, but as, you're, as, a, as a member of a family, a community, et cetera, and really hone in on that vision. Because that's the thing, when things are going tough, you can always fall back to that and let that be your, your, guiding, your guiding star. Yeah, it's an anchor point. And the thing is, we're the ones who define that. Not our supervisor, not our organization, not our friends, not our family. We're the one who defines that. This is our life. This is our gift. And if we don't define that for ourselves, then we allow other people to do it for us. Um, and sometimes that, you know, that can go awry very quickly. Um, but yeah, that, that same idea of taking a weekend, taking a sabbatical, uh, a vacation, you know, 10 minutes of solitude in the morning. This is why so many of our ceremonies, uh, you know, across Indian country had um, this element incorporated into it because our elders and ancestors knew that the quieter we are in that moment, the louder that voice inside of us comes out. And we can't hear that when we're constantly immersed in chaos, when we're running around with our hair on fire and, um, you know, living the lives we typically live and wonder why we're not getting where we want to go. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. Uh, a concept you discuss in the book is this, it comes from the Plains tribes. They had this warrior practice of counting coup. What is counting coup? And then let's talk about how can leaders count coup in their work? Yeah. Counting coup is a great tradition that the Plains tribes warriors practiced. And what it was, and the reason why it was such an honor is because of what it required. Uh, counting coup was going up to your enemy during live combat and not striking your enemy down with a tomahawk or a lance, but simply touching them, touching them with your hand or with what's called a coup stick, like it looks like a riding crop. And that that's it. You just touch them because of what it required was the ultimate act of courage to stand face to face with your fear, with your obstacle, with your enemy and say, I am not afraid of you. I'm so not afraid of you. I'm not even going to destroy you or strike you down. I'm just going to face you eye to eye. And we have to do that in our own lives. I mean, it's a great tradition that has a beautiful alignment with what we deal with on a daily basis, which is fear. And we can run away from it. We can, you know, we end up exhausted. It still shows up or we can just face it. And once we face our fears, we're able to do some things in that moment that really help us out. We can start asking ourselves a question like, what story am I telling myself about what I'm going through right now? Um, We can ask ourselves questions like, is that story real or is this just fear showing up in my life? Um, we can ask ourselves questions like, are these thoughts useful? Because sometimes we're just ruminating and we're building up an obstacle or a challenge into this giant mountain based on the things that we're saying over and over again. This isn't going to work out. It can't work out. Oh my gosh, who am I to do this? You know, we've got to be able to face our fears head on so that we can go through them. Um, if, if not, then we can't move forward. Well, one tip you provide is uh, for people to develop their own war cry. Uh, yeah. What can a war cry do to help develop that warrior spirit? Yeah, war cry was done traditionally by our warriors for two purposes. One was, you know, and, and first of all, just to clarify, a war cry was, you know, a full-throated scream, you know, wild gestures, you know, just, and, and it was done for two reasons. 
One was to scare the hell out of the enemy. So you want to win the battle before the fight even starts. That was the first reason. And the second reason was to boost our own adrenaline, to boost our courage when we needed it the most. And a war cry now, if you if you you know bring it into modern day terms, doesn't have to be a full-throated yell. It can be a prayer. It could be a mantra. It could be a motivational quote that you go to as a touchstone. It could be something that you wear. It could be a song. You know, anything can qualify as that, but it's something that you go back to in a moment of doubt, fear, hesitation, that when you go back to that touchstone and use that war cry, we have what we need in that moment, which is just a little boost of courage so we can take that next step. Well, I know uh, in the Lakota, Hoka Hay was the war cry. Yeah. Like it's a good day to die. Yeah. It's yeah, good, that's yeah. a pretty it's a pretty good mantra for for life. That means I'm all in. You know, like like leave it on the table. I'm not holding anything back. This is my life. I want to live it fully and I want to live it fully right now. I don't want to wait for tomorrow or next week or when I get this done or when I retire. I want to do it today, right now in this moment. And I think sometimes people roll their eyes at the idea of having a mantra, but it can't help when you're when you're in that stressful situation. I think you know sports psychologists talk about that. A lot of these high performance athletes, they have a word that they just tell themselves when they're doing that, you know, putt that's you know worth a million dollars. They just repeat yeah. that over and over again. And it's to control. It's to control the fear. That's it. And and the thing is, words do matter. The words that we share with other people matter. The words that we share with ourselves matter. They have real impact. They condition our brain. They give us direction and guidance. That you know, the way that we talk about something, a situation, or or even ourselves is kind of that primer. Yeah, you know, that that kind of sets us up for a belief system towards that moment or towards ourselves. So our words absolutely matter. We've all experienced that. Words can cut. Words can build. The thing is, we need to make those choices conscientiously so we can, you know, create that environment of strength around us. So I, I, you know, I I use these type of things all the time. They really work because, like I said, the question isn't if fear shows up. The question is when it does, how are you going to handle it? So lately, the past few years, one of the parts of American history that I've gotten really into is the, the Indian Wars. I think it's an mm-hmm. overlooked part, but it's just completely fascinating because you learn so much about uh, Native American warfare and their strategy, especially after the Civil War. There's some, I mean, there's there's stuff that happened that the Native Americans did that later on the U.S. military incorporated into their strategy. And one of their tactics was this idea of just constant raiding warfare. And you use this idea to talk about the importance of taking action. So what can we learn about taking action from raiding warfare style of of Native Americans, Plains tribes? Yeah, great question. And what it came down to was wearing the enemy down, right? Because our our warriors were outmatched technology-wise, numbers-wise. So when it came to that warfare, that raiding type of warfare, it was attack and then melt away, attack and then melt away until you win or until you you defend your, your people and can get away. And when we talk about how important that is, I mean, that it really did have a real world impact. I mean, this is how the American colonies defeated the most mighty military in the world at the time, the British Empire, to form the United States. I mean, they used those tactics precisely, and it it made a huge difference. It changed history. How we use that in our own lives is we attack an object or, or we create momentum towards our goal a little bit at a time. And when we, when we need a break, we take a break. When we need another resource, we get that. 
but we keep moving forward incessantly towards our goal. And it's not about doing everything in one day. That's what leads to burnout. That's what leads to frustration. It's doing a little something every day. That's what ultimately gets us to the goal. That's what ultimately gets us to victory. And so that's why I use that analogy in there because so, so often, you know, we start off strong. We're like, I'm going to do it all today. And we're all, you know, we're all gung ho. And then when things get rough, we pull back and say things like, well, I guess it's not meant to be, I guess it's not going to work out after all. You know, we have to have that relentless type of attack, you know, regroup and attack again until we get to where we want to be. No, I like that. I, I think you're right. I've done that before where I have this project I want to take on. And then I just decided I'm not going to stop until I, I finish it. And then I just burn myself out. And then I'm useless. Yeah. I'm useless for like the next couple of weeks. <laughs> and it would have been better if I just, you know, tacked a little bit. And yeah, you said, go back, take a break and then just keep, because you, you yeah. can do it for longer. Man, this is why boxers, you know, I boxed in college. I mean, this is why boxers take breaks in between rounds, you know? And the reason why is because you recharge your batteries, you know, spiritually, emotionally, and physically, so you can get back in to the fight and be effective. You can't do that if you just go until you can't go anymore. That's that's burnout, and then we're no good to anybody. And then you also talk in this chapter about action, the importance of developing momentum, how do you develop that momentum so you can have that ceaseless, relentless, you know, attack and retreat, attack and retreat? Yeah. Momentum is, is so critically important in achievement because it's, it's doing those little steps that get kind of the, the energy that we want to create flowing in the right direction. It's like pushing a stalled car. You know, those first couple of steps can be backbreakers. And this is what makes most people walk away from their goals or the things that they're trying to achieve as, as a leader is those first couple steps are backbreaking. But once you get the momentum going, it's a lot easier to keep that car going down the road. And so it's those little things that we do daily. That's what I was saying. It's uh, you know the, the small stuff that we do each day that creates momentum in, in the goals that we're trying to achieve. And there's also something else from Native warriors that we could possibly learn from. Like they didn't fight all year round. There was a season for fighting. And then there was a season for hunting. I think there's something you can learn from that. You're going to have periods where you have like a war season. I got this thing I need to do. But then you're also going to need to have periods where it's rest and recuperation and recovery. That's it. And when we do that, we're sustainable in, in what we're pursuing. If we don't do that, we just quickly, very quickly sometimes get to burnout. We get frustrated. We get, you know, we have health issues, relationship issues. It just, we push ourselves in a way that, you know, it's, it's like our life and career start to feel like a treadmill with one button on it faster. So if we don't take that recovery time, that's exactly what happens. I don't care how strong you are physically, mentally, emotionally, you keep doing it that way. It's only a matter of time before you fall off the treadmill. So taking those breaks and, and respecting the season and the flow, like you're talking about that, that's one of the, you know, Native American philosophies that every tribe I've worked with has, which is the concept of balance. You know, there's a day for night, a joy for pain into every life and career. You're going to have your victories and you're going to have your stumbles and your, you know, your humility moments. That's all part of the deal. And you, you can't get away from it. When we violate that, like I said, we, we end up in bad places that we don't want to be. Yeah. And I think this idea of recovery, this is going to the idea of maintaining that warrior spirit once you got it going. You have this whole chapter about the firekeeper. What's the firekeeper in Native American culture? And like, I mean, let's flesh out more of this idea of, of keeping that fire going. Yeah, yeah. The, the firekeeper was a sacred role in our tribal communities. And it was all about keeping that, that fire, that beating heart of that community burning. 
And under all conditions, any circumstance, and especially during ceremony, a firekeeper's role is really, really important because if that fire goes out, the ceremony is often ruined. And so, you know, and fires provide a lot of things for villages that are, are critical, you know, food for sustenance, light, heat, but also a gathering place for people to exchange ideas and, and rekindle bonds. In our own life, we have that fire too. And it's that internal drive. It's that, you know, you can call it motivation, inspiration, and we are responsible for keeping it burning bright. And when we don't do that, it can burn down to an ember. Sometimes it even goes out. And that's because we falsely think that, you know, that what we do is automatically going to provide us motivation. And it doesn't work that way. Uh, I don't care if you're an Imagineer for Disney, a, you know, astronaut, a teacher trying to, you know, change the landscape of inner city education. We get into things because we know that they have value to us and we want to make an impact. So we think that we're always going to be motivated, but that's not the case. We have to create that in our lives on purpose with purpose. That's why we keep that, you know, that's how we keep that fire burning bright. So what are some practical things that people can do to, you know, keep that fire burning that you've seen work in your life and your clients' lives? Yeah, go, go out of your way for it. You know, start the day with reading something inspirational or uplifting or educational. Uh, surround yourself with people that keep you thinking, keep you moving in the right direction. You know, consciously choose the things that are in your environment on a daily basis, your habits, your practices, the growth elements, you know, the things that we're watching, that we're listening to, our support structure, who we lean on in times of trouble, uh, when we have a problem that, you know, is we're really stumped or we're really feeling scared, where are you going to go in those moments? These things all really matter. Plus the thing that we're talking about, all those things can help keep us at that level that we want to be as far as staying motivated. Motivation is not a magic bullet. You know, I, I do, an, you know, I tell a story in some of my sessions about, and it, people who are scared to fly. And if they're scared to fly, you wouldn't run, run into a pilot who said they don't know what they're doing, but they're awfully excited to take off. Right. Uh, that's, you know, that pilot may have great motivation, but still needs experience, skills, training. The reason why motivation is so important, it might not be everything, but it surely affects everything that we do. And it's up to us to create it and maintain it. Yeah, I really like that idea of you have this in that chapter, you talk about tribing up, make sure you find surround yourself with people who will support you and just, I don't nurture you. I think I think a lot of people lack that today, because they just feel like they're doing it on their own. And it's amazing when you just have you can sit around with people, maybe kvetch a little, but then just talk how much that can just buoy your spirits. And so you can keep going. Absolutely. I mean, this is medicine for us. I mean, it really is. And it's who we surround ourselves with and being able to have those moments where we do lean on other people, let them lean on us. You know, I, I have a, a principle in the book that I share and, and explain, and it's that warriors never fought alone. Fighting alone is dumb. You know, you are not going to get the results that you want to get when you're just out there lone wolfing it. You know, there's moments in time where we're doing things on our own. I get that. But overall, we need each other. We're better when we're with each other, or, or let me caveat that, with the right people. And it's up to us to make sure we're surrounding ourselves that way. Quickest way I've ever seen to become a happy, healthy human being, surround yourself with a happy, healthy people. Quickest way to become negative, toxic, a complainer, a gossiper, surround yourself or allow those people to be in your environment. I had an elder years ago tell me something that the older I get, the more I see it to be true. He said, our spirits are like sponges. They soak up whatever they're around. No, that's true. And I think a lot of people, this, yeah, this idea of the lone wolf, it's appealing. But even in 
you know, native tribes, the lone wolves often got kicked out. Like they were, that's it. They were useless. <laughs> like they actually caused problems. That's it. And the, and the thing is that, that, you know, there's an over romanticizing of that warrior role when we start labeling it as something that it never was, you know, that warrior role, we put them, we put them on a pedestal on a mountain and they are beyond pain, beyond fear. They need no one, only the next worthy challenge, which is a bunch of garbage. Our warriors fought in the company of other warriors, because if you want to be brave, you surround yourself with bravery. They didn't do it on their own. And the reason why is because you know, we had to get our pride and ego out of the way and remember what the role of a warrior was to serve their people, not just, you know, to feed and protect their people, not to feed and protect their ego. So that lone wolf, you know, image is just, it's, it's false. It gets us into trouble because we think if we're really going to, you know, channel that warrior spirit and be a warrior, we have to go it alone. I have to do this myself, which is absolutely positively not true. And it's, and it's not a good strategy either. Another principle you talked about that really hit home to me in this keeping the fire burning is taking time to celebrate your wins, your past wins. Yeah. Why do you think that's important? Why do we tend to not do that? Yeah. Because if we don't do it, we condition ourselves not to care, you know, taking the time to celebrate the wins, the victories. We do such a poor job of that because we're so busy being busy. You know, we, we can accomplish a great goal and instead of going, man, let me reflect on what this took, you know, to take a few moments to, to really acknowledge what it took for me to get here. We don't do that. We just blow right through and go on to the next thing and then the next thing and the next. And that's what leads us to burnout. You know, we're, we're really good at celebrating victories when we first start our careers, jobs. We first join a sports team, whatever it may be. At the beginning, we're good at it. You know, we do one little thing right. And we're like, woohoo, you know, celebrate, high five but we get really bad at it as we get busier and busier. And we need to go out of our way to do that because what it does is it, it sweetens the flavor of success so that we crave another one. And we're conditioning ourselves to want that next thing when we actually reward ourselves for doing the last thing. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there something like, like the, the war song in tribal cultures, like a, a warrior would develop their own war song. It was basically them just talking about their great epic deeds they did. Yeah, I mean that was that was part of post battle. Yeah. Was reflecting on, you know, who did what, why it mattered, the impact that it had for the people. I mean, this was part of it. It was the reflection time and it was a celebration time if there was a, a victory and and also, you know, memorializing the people who were lost if if it didn't go well. And you know, that is an important part, you know, to think about as well is, you know, when we do that, we're able to gather wisdom and teachable points, you know, from what we just went through. We can't do that. Like I said, if we just blow past and go on to the next thing. So you have this chapter about how different tribes develop discipline and toughness in their warriors. What are some practices that you found in different tribes and what can we learn from that? Yeah, it was exposure to the elements. It was going without food, water at times. It was, it was long runs. It was games, you know, rough games, stick ball, stick ball, uh, you know, I've seen yeah, that. That's it was, rough. It was brutal. And they called it the little brother of war for a reason. You know, these were played on big fields or hardly any rules. There was a clear goal, but how you got there was, you know, innovation, fierceness, toughness. It was kind of like a mix between football, basketball, soccer, and UFC. And, and these are the things that brought out, you know, tough times don't necessarily develop character, but they sure reveal it. 
And these were opportunities that warriors in training had to develop their own. But, you know, when you do that, you develop that, that toughness, that uh, ability to flex under strain, that ability to bounce back when you fall. Those are the opportunities that, you know, we created on purpose to develop strength uh, in our warrior societies. So what can that look like for just someone who's not Native American? It could be that next hard workout. It could be disciplining yourself to, to change habits that aren't serving you anymore. It could be doing tough things on, on a normal daily basis. And you know that they're tough, you know, an exercise of courage to face that next thing. Like we were talking about facing our fears head on. It's not, you know, the stuff that we typically think swimming with sharks or wrestling alligators. It's starting that project. It's asking for help. It's apologizing. It's realizing that, you know, what you're doing over and over again isn't working. You know, these things are also, you know, also require courage. So we get to practice that on a daily basis. But it's it's basically putting ourselves in a position to toughen ourselves up so that when times really do get hard, we're able to weather that. So for a warrior, you know, they're they gotta be vigorous, they gotta be disciplined, tough, physically active. There's a certain point where a warrior ages out, right? And you're when you're 60, you probably can't be a warrior as well as you were when you were 22. But that doesn't mean that they're they stop being warriors. What happens to warriors when they when they age out and they're not ab- actually able to physically fight and take part in raids? We get to a certain point, even in our own lives and careers, just like those warriors who got older, where we start getting into more of a transition phase, where we're not, at, we don't have as much responsibility. Maybe we're getting close to retirement, and at that point, the transition happens where we start benefiting our people by sharing our knowledge and wisdom. You know, uh, that's where we become an elder in our tribe. And we're able to pass down all the things that we've learned, especially the stuff we learned the hard way and try to be able to make somebody else's journey a little bit easier, a little bit more effective. And so the contribution doesn't stop. It just changes. And the elders in our tribal communities are, are the backbone of our culture. They hand down the, the values and the virtues and the wisdom and the songs and ceremony and all the things that make us who we are as native people. And we can do that in our own communities and our own groups that we serve when we're handing down the things, like I said, that we've learned that we know are important that can benefit our people. No matter what we do, you know, for a living and how long the weeks get or how tough it might be, I can, I can make you one promise. You won't be doing it forever. You know, at some point you're going to transition and hand the baton to somebody else. And I think the highest hope we can hope for if we care about who we work with and who we serve is that we're putting that baton into better hands than our own. And that only happens by design. Well, I have a question. How do you know when you're in that, in that transition period, when it's, you're moving from active warrior to elder warrior? Yeah, I don't think there's a hard, fast line. You know, I mean, it, it's a, it is a transition in, in its purest sense. It's, it kind of happens over time. But I think we start to know more and more when it's time for us not to, to be at the forefront of doing the work, but to more reach back and offer a hand to the people that are coming up behind us. And there, you know, even in our tribal communities, there was no magical age that you just become an elder. And when we try to do that, we're, you know, putting a square peg in a round hole. It's a transition period. You get to a place at where you start, you know, turning around, I guess, looking over your shoulder and thinking about all the people that you can help with all the stuff that you've learned on your journey. So it, it, it's something that's individual. It's a personal decision, but it's something to be aware of. 
so once you are making that transition, what are some things that people can do so they can really step into that role? Because I feel like, I, th- I think it's interesting, I'm, I'm approaching middle age. I think there's a lot of information out there for young men who are starting out. Like, here are the things you need to know, do, here's a rite of passage for you, et cetera. Yeah. But then once you get to middle age and then into elder, there's nothing like that. There's no like, here are the things you need to do to be an elder. But I think it would be useful. So what are, I mean, do you have anything in your experience where here's some things you can start doing once you recognize you're entering that transition into becoming a quote unquote elder. Yeah. And that, and that's a great, <laughs> that's a really great perspective. You know, the first thing I would say is start collecting your stories, start gathering your stories and, and find opportunities to share. And when we share those stories with other people, it's not in a, you know, in a way that, Hey, I've, I've done all this and you need to sit down and listen to all the wisdom I'm going to jam down your throat. It's being able to share a story where we're in a position, uh, especially when we're vulnerable and share how things didn't go well. You know, that's sometimes the best stories we can share with other people is the things that we learn when things went sideways or got pear-shaped and how we came back and, and bounced and how they can too. You know, when we, t- when we share those ideas, it's always in the spirit of how is it going to benefit the person I'm sharing this story with? So that would be the first thing I would say is start collecting your stories. You know, we've got a treasure trove of that stuff to draw from and then find opportunities to to share it, you know, either in person, online, at team meetings. You know, there are sometimes, uh, you know, it doesn't take long, but they can be really impactful moments and some of the best ones we can share with other people. I love that. Well, DJ, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Best place to find me is on our website, which is nativediscovery.com. My newest book, The Warrior Within, comes out very soon uh, on August 2nd and is available everywhere books are sold. But nativediscovery.com is is uh, the best place to get a hold of me. Fantastic. Well, DJ Vanis, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This has been an honor. My guest today was DJ Vanis. He's the author of the book, The Warrior Within. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, nativediscovery.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash warrior spirit, where you can find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS to check out for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot done that already thank you please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it as always thank you for the continued support until next time it's brett mckay remind you to listen to the podcast but put what you've heard into action mm-hmm.